Hey everyone, it is I, DB Spitzer, here with week four of Edgar Allan Poe, The Collected Works, The Raven Edition. So that's volume four. Yeah, that's that's what we got going on on Black Clock Audio Tales. Also, we have, uh, at some point in time, soon, we're going to have Ken Height talking about Edgar Allan Poe and some Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans reading some Poe for us. So here we are. Edgar Allan Poe, and of course, as always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter. Don't, 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 uh, don't, don't succumb to, to frostbite. Just make sure you wear slippers. It's a good plan, but, you know, if you're going outside in subarctic temperatures, wear more than bunny slippers. Just word of advice. BunnySlippers.com. Don't die of a exhaustion and exposure yeah also found item clothing wear cool shirts from your favorite cool cult films of the 80s and 90s and some 70s stuff okay all right and also of course check out articulate warbling with zach ferguson look for him and dave's underground goat shenanigans on pgttcm.com and you can follow us on instagram you can follow us on facebook and you can follow us on twitter pgttcm.com black clock audio tales just search for those two things and you will find us out in the world on the internet all that fun stuff all right edgar Allan poe right now and remember hey sorry <laughs> remember if you want people to know about it share it with other people let other people know about it uh rate review give it us uh five stars on the amazon and uh, not amazon the itunes or stitcher or whatever uh, thank you so much recording by draconis Melanta Tauta by Edgar Allan Poe To the editors of The Lady's Book I have the honor of sending you, for your magazine, an article which I hope you will be able to comprehend rather more distinctly than I do myself. It is a translation by my friend Martin Van Buren Mavis, sometimes called the Poughkeepsie Seer, of an odd-looking MS, which I found about a year ago tightly corked up in a jug, floating in the Mare Tenebrarum, a sea well described by the Nubian geographer, but seldom visited nowadays, except for the transcendentalists and divers for crotchets. Truly yours, Edgar A. Poe. On Board Balloon Skylark, April 1st, 2848. Now, my dear friend, now for your sins, you are to suffer the infliction of a long gossiping letter. I tell you distinctly that I am going to punish you for all your impertinences by being as tedious, as discursive, as incoherent, and as unsatisfactory as possible. Besides, here I am, cooped up in a dirty balloon with some one or two hundred of the canile, all bound on a pleasure excursion. What a funny idea some people have of pleasure and I have no prospect of touching terra firma for a month, at least. Nobody to talk to, nothing to do. When one has nothing to do, then is the time to correspond with one's friends. You perceive, then, why it is that I write you this letter. It is on account of my annui and your sins. Get ready your spectacles and make up your mind to be annoyed. 
I mean to write at you every day during this odious voyage. Hi-ho! When will any invention visit the human pericranium? Are we forever to be doomed to the thousand inconveniences of the balloon? Will nobody contrive a more expeditious mode of progress? The jog-trot movement, to my thinking, is little less than positive torture. Upon my word, we have not made more than a hundred miles the hour since leaving home. The very birds beat us, at least some of them. I assure you that I do not exaggerate at all. Our motion, no doubt, seems slower than it actually is. This on account of our having no objects about us by which to estimate our velocity, and on account of our going with the wind. To be sure, whenever we meet a balloon we have a chance of perceiving our rate, and then, I admit, things do not appear so very bad, accustomed as I am to this mode of travelling. I cannot get over a kind of giddiness whenever a balloon passes us in a current directly overhead. It always seems to me like an immense bird of prey about to pounce upon us and carry us off in its claws. One went over us this morning about sunrise, and so nearly overhead that its drag rope actually brushed the network suspending our car, and caused us very serious apprehension. Our captain said that if the material of the bag had been the trumpery varnished silk of five hundred or thousand years ago, we should inevitably have been damaged. This silk, as he explained to me, was a fabric composed of the entrails of a species of earthworm. The worm was carefully fed on mulberries, a kind of fruit resembling a watermelon, and when sufficiently fat, was crushed in a mill. The paste thus arising was called papyrus in its primary state, and went through a variety of processes until it finally became silk. Singular to relate, it was once much admired as an article of female dress. Balloons were also very generally constructed from it. A better kind of material, it appears, was subsequently found in the down surrounding the seed vessels of a plant vulgarly called euphorbium, and at that time botanically termed milkweed. This latter kind of silk was designated as silk buckingham on account of its superior durability, and was usually prepared for use by being varnished with a solution of gum caoutchouc, a substance which in some respects must have resembled the gutta-percha now in common use. This caoutchouc was occasionally called Indian rubber, or rubber of twist, and was no doubt one of the numerous fungi. Never tell me again that I am not at heart an antiquarian. Talking of drag ropes, our own, it seems, has this moment knocked a man overboard from one of the small magnetic propellers that swarm in ocean below us. A boat of about six thousand tons and, from all accounts, shamefully crowded. These diminutive barks should be prohibited from carrying more than a definite number of passengers. The man, of course, was not permitted to get on board again, and was soon out of sight, he and his life preserver. I rejoice, my dear friend, that we live in an age so enlightened that no such a thing as an individual is supposed to exist. It is the mass for which the true humanity cares. By the by, talking of humanity, do you know that our immortal Wiggins is not so original in his views of the social condition and so forth, as his contemporaries are inclined to suppose? Pundit assures me that the same ideas were put nearly in the same way about a thousand years ago, 
by an Irish philosopher called Furrier on account of his keeping a retail shop for cat peltries and other furs. Pundit knows, you know. There can be no mistake about it. How very wonderfully do we see verified every day the profound observation of the Hindu Aries Tottle, as quoted by Pundit. Thus must we say that, not once or twice, or a few times, but with almost infinite repetitions, the same opinions come round in a circle among men. April 2nd Spoke today the magnetic cutter in charge of the middle section of floating telegraph wires. I learn that when this species of telegraph was first put into operation by horse, it was considered quite impossible to convey the wires over sea. But now we are at a loss to comprehend where the difficulty lay. So wags the world. Tempora mutanter. Excuse me for quoting the Etruscan. What would we do without the Atlantic telegraph? Pundit says Atlantic was the ancient adjective. We lay to a few minutes to ask the cutter some questions, and learned, among other glorious news, that civil war is raging in Africa, while the plague is doing its good work beautifully both in Europe and Aishur. Is it not truly remarkable that, before the magnificent light shed upon philosophy by humanity, the world was accustomed to regard war and pestilence as calamities? Do you know that prayers were actually offered up in the ancient temples to the end that these evils might not be visited upon mankind? Is it not really difficult to comprehend upon what principle of interest our forefathers acted? Were they so blind as not to perceive that the destruction of a myriad of individuals is only so much positive advantage to the mass? April 3rd. It is really a very fine amusement to ascend the rope ladder leading to the summit of the balloon bag, and thence survey the surrounding world. From the car below, you know the prospect is not so comprehensive. You can see little vertically, but seated here, where I write this, in the luxuriously cushioned open piazza of the summit, one can see everything that is going on in all directions. Just now, there is quite a crowd of balloons in sight, and they present a very animated appearance, while the air is resonant with the hum of so many millions of human voices. I have heard it asserted that when yellow or, pungent will have it, violet, who is supposed to have been the first aeronaut, maintained the practicability of traversing the atmosphere in all directions, by merely ascending or descending until a favorable current was attained. He was scarcely hearkened to at all by his contemporaries, who looked upon him as merely an ingenious sort of madman, because the philosophers of the day declared the things impossible. Really, now, it does seem to me quite unaccountable how anything so obviously feasible could have escaped the sagacity of the ancient savans. But in all ages, the great obstacles to advancement in art have been opposed by the so-called men of science. To be sure, our men of science are not quite so bigoted as those of old. Oh, I have something so queer to tell you on this topic. Do you know that it is not more than a thousand years ago since the metaphysicians consented to relieve the people of the singular fancy that there existed but two possible roads for the attainment of truth? Believe it if you can. It appears that long, long ago, in the night of time, there lived a Turkish philosopher, or Hindu possibly, called Aries Tottle. This person introduced, or at all events propagated, what was termed the deductive or a priori mode of investigation. 
He started with what he maintained to be axioms or self-evident truths, and thence proceeded logically to results. His greatest disciples were one Euclid and one Kant. Well, Aries Tuttle flourished supreme till advent of one hog, surnamed the Ettrick Shepherd, who preached an entirely different system, which he called the a posteriori or inductive. His plan referred altogether to sensation. He proceeded by observing, analyzing, and classifying facts instantiae natura, as they were affectedly called, into general laws. Aries Tottle's mode, in a word, was based on nomina, hogs on phenomena. Well, so great was the admiration excited by this latter system that, at its first introduction, Aries Tottle fell into disrepute, but finally he recovered ground and was permitted to divide the realm of truth with his more modern rival. The savans now maintained the Aristotelian and Baconian roads were the sole possible avenues to knowledge. Baconian, you must know, was an adjective invented as equivalent to Hoggian and more euphorious and dignified. Now, my dear friend, I do assure you most positively that I represent this matter fairly, on the soundest authority, and you can easily understand how a notion so absurd on its very face must have operated to retard the progress of all true knowledge, which makes its advances almost invariably by intuitive bounds. The ancient idea confined investigations to crawling, and for hundreds of years so great was the infatuation about Hogg especially, that a virtual end was put to all thinking properly so called. No man dared utter a truth to which he felt himself indebted to his soul alone. It mattered not whether the truth was even demonstrably a truth, for the bullet-headed savans of the time regarded only the road by which he had attained it. They would not even look at the end. Let us see the means, they cried. The means. If upon investigation of the means it was found to come under neither the category Ares, that is to say Ram, nor under the category hog, why then the savans went no farther, but pronounced the theorist a fool, and would have nothing to do with him or his truth. Now it cannot be maintained even, that by the crawling system the greatest amount of truth would be attained, in any long series of ages, for the repression of imagination was an evil not to be compensated for by any superior certainty in the ancient modes of investigation. The error of these Germains, these Virinch, these English, and those Americans, the latter, by the way, were our own immediate progenitors, was an error quite analogous with that of the wise Acre, who fancies that he must necessarily see an object the better the more closely he holds it to his eyes. These people blinded themselves by details. When they proceeded hoggishly, their facts were by no means always facts, a matter of little consequence had it not been for assuming that they were facts and must be facts because they appeared to be such. When they proceeded on the path of the ram, their course was scarcely as straight as a ram's horn, for they never had an axiom which was an axiom at all. They must have been very blind not to see this, even in their own day, for even in their own day many of the long-established axioms had been rejected, for example, ex nihilo nihil fit. A body cannot act where it is not. There cannot exist antipodes. Darkness cannot come out of the light. All these, and a dozen other similar propositions, formerly admitted without hesitation as axioms, were, even at the period of which I speak, seen to be untenable. 
How absurd in these people, then, to persist in putting faith in axioms as immutable bases of truth. But, even out of the mouths of their soundest reasoners, it is easy to demonstrate the futility, the impalpability, of their axioms in general. Who was the soundest of their logicians? Let me see. I will go and ask Pundit and be back in a minute. Ah, here we have it. Here is a book written nearly a thousand years ago and lately translated from English, which, by the way, appears to have been the rudiment of the American. Pundit says it is decidedly the cleverest ancient work on its topic, logic. The author, who was much thought of in his day, was one Miller or Mill, and we find it recorded of him as a point of some importance that he had a mill horse called Bentham. But let us glance at the treaties. Ah, ability or inability to conceive, says Mr. Mill very properly, is in no case to be received as a criterion of axiomatic truth. What modern in his senses would ever think of disputing this truism? The only wonder with us must be how it happened that Mr. Mill conceived it necessary even to hint at anything so obvious, so far good, but let us turn over another paper. What have we here? Contradictories cannot both be true, that is, cannot coexist in nature. Here, Mr. Mill means, for example, that a tree must be either a tree or not a tree, that it cannot be at the same time a tree and not a tree. Very well, but I ask him why. His reply is this, and never pretends to be anything else than this, because it is impossible to conceive that contradictories can both be true. But this is no answer at all. By his own showing, for has he not just admitted as a truism that ability or inability to conceive is in no case to be received as a criterion of axiomatic truth? Now, I do not complain of these ancients so much because their logic is, by their own showing, utterly baseless, worthless, and fantastic altogether, as because of their pompous and imbecile proscription of all other roads of truth, of all other means for its attainment than the two preposterous paths, the one of creeping and the one of crawling, to which they have dared to confine the soul that loves nothing so well as to soar. By the by, my dear friend, do you not think it would have puzzled these ancient dogmaticians to have determined by which of their two roads it was that the most important and most sublime of all their truths was, in effect, attained? I mean the truth of gravitation. Newton owed it to Kepler. Kepler admitted that his three laws were guessed at. These three laws of all laws which led the great English mathematician to his principle, the basis of all physical principle, to go behind which we must enter the kingdom of metaphysics. Kepler guessed, that is to say imagined, he was essentially a theorist. That word now of so much sanctity formerly an epithet of contempt. Would it not have puzzled these old moles, too, to have explained by which of the two roads a cryptographist unriddles a cryptograph of more than usual secrecy, or by which of the two roads Champollion directed mankind to those enduring and almost innumerable truths which resulted from his deciphering the hieroglyphics? One word more on this topic, and I will be done boring you. Is it not passing strange that, with their eternal prattling about roads to truth, these bigoted people missed what we now so clearly perceive to be the great highway, that of consistency? Does it not seem singular how they should have failed to deduce from the works of God the vital fact that a perfect consistency must be an absolute truth? 
How plain has been our progress since the late announcement of this proposition? Investigation has been taken out of the hands of the ground moles and given as a task to the true and only true thinkers, the men of ardent imagination, these latter theorize. Can you not fancy the shout of scorn with which my words would be received by our progenitors, were it possible for them to be now looking over my shoulder? These men, I say, theorize, and their theories are simply corrected, reduced, systemized, cleared, little by little, of their dross of inconsistency, until finally a perfect consistency stands apparent which even the most stolid admit, because it is a consistency to be an absolute and an unquestionable truth. April 4th. The new gas is doing wonders in conjunction with the new improvement with gutta-percha. How very safe, commodious, manageable, and in every respect convenient are our modern balloons. Here is an immense one approaching us at the rate of at least a hundred and fifty miles an hour. It seems to be crowded with people. Perhaps there are three or four hundred passengers, and yet it soars to an elevation of nearly a mile, looking down upon poor us with sovereign contempt. Still a hundred or even two hundred miles an hour is slow traveling after all. Do you remember our flight on the railroad across the Canadao continent? Fully three hundred miles the hour that was traveling. Nothing to be seen, though. Nothing to be done but flirt, feast, and dance in the magnificent saloons. Do you remember what an odd sensation was experienced when by chance we caught a glimpse of external objects while the cars were in full flight? Everything seemed unique in one mass. For my part, I cannot say but that I preferred the traveling by the slow train of a hundred miles the hour. Here we were permitted to have glass windows, even to have them open, and something like a distinct view of the country was attainable. Pundit says that the route for the great Canadao Railroad must have been in some measure marked out about 900 years ago. In fact, he goes so far as to assert that actual traces of a road are still discernible, traces referable to a period quite as remote as that mentioned. The track, it appears, was double only. Ours, you know, has twelve paths, and three or four new ones are in preparation. The ancient rails were very slight, and placed so close together as to be, according to modern notions, quite frivolous, if not dangerous in the extreme. The present width of track, fifty feet, is considered, indeed, scarcely secure enough. For my part, I make no doubt that a track of some sort must have existed in very remote times, as Pundit asserts, for nothing can be clearer to my mind than that, at some period, not less than seven centuries ago, certainly, the northern and southern Canada continents were united. The Canadians, then, would have been driven by necessity to a great railroad across the continent. April 5th. I am almost devoured by Inui. Pundit is the only conversable person on board, and he, poor soul, can speak of nothing but antiquities. He has been occupied all the day in the attempt to convince me that the ancient Americans governed themselves. Did ever anybody hear of such an absurdity? That they existed in a sort of every-man-for-himself confederacy after the fashion of the prairie dogs that we read of in fable. He says that they started with the queerest idea conceivable, viz. that all men are born free and equal. This, in the very teeth of the laws of gradation, 
so visibly impressed upon all things, both in the moral and physical universe. Every man voted, as they called it, that is to say, meddled with public affairs, until at length it was discovered that what is everybody's business is nobody's, and that the republic, so the absurd thing was called, was without a government at all. It is related, however, that the first circumstance which disturbed, very particularly, the self-complacency of the philosophers who constructed this republic was the startling discovery that universal suffrage gave opportunity for fraudulent schemes, by means of which any desired number of votes might at any time be polled without the possibility of prevention or even detection by any party which should be merely villainous enough not to be ashamed of the fraud. A little reflection upon this discovery sufficed to render evident the consequences which for that rascality must predominate, in a word, that a republican government could never be anything but a rascally one. While the philosophers, however, were busied in blushing at their stupidity in not having foreseen these inevitable evils, and intent upon the invention of new theories, the matter was put to an abrupt issue by a fellow of the name of Mob, who took everything into his own hands and set up a despotism in comparison with which those of the fabulous zeros and hellofagvaluses were respectable and delectable. This mob, a foreigner by the by, is said to have been the most odious of all men that ever encumbered the earth. He was a giant in stature, insolent, rapacious, filthy, had the gall of a bullock, with the heart of a hyena, and the brains of a peacock. He died at length by dint of his own energies which exhausted him. Nevertheless, he had his uses, as everything has, however vile, and taught mankind a lesson, which to this day it is in no danger of forgetting, never to run directly contrary to the natural analogies. As for republicanism, no analogy could be found for it upon the face of the earth, unless we accept the case of the prairie dogs, an exception which seems to demonstrate, if anything, that democracy is a very admirable form of government for dogs. April 6th. Last night had a fine view of Alpha Lyrae, whose disc, through our captain's spyglass, substance an angle of half a degree, looking very much as our sun does to the naked eye on a misty day. Alpha Lyrae, although so very much larger than our sun, by the by, resembles him closely as regards to its spots its atmosphere, and in many other particulars. It is only within the last century, Pundit tells me, that the binary relation existing between these two orbs began even to be suspected. The evident motion of our system in the heavens was, strange to say, referred to an orbit about a prodigious star in the center of the galaxy. About this star, or at all events about a center of gravity, common to all the globes of the Milky Way, and supposed to be near Alcyone in the Pleiades, every one of these globes was declared to be revolving, our own performing the circuit in a period of 117 millions of years. We, with our present lights, our vast telescopic improvements, and so forth, of course, find it difficult to comprehend the ground of an idea such as this. Its first propagator was one muddler. He was led we must presume, to this wild hypothesis by mere analogy in the first instance. But, this being the case, 
he should have at least adhered to analogy in its development a great central orb was in fact suggested so far muddler was consistent this central orb however dynamically should have been greater than all its surrounding orbs taken together the question might then have been asked why do we not see it we especially who occupy the mid-region of the cluster the very locality near which at least must be situated this inconceivable central sun the astronomer perhaps at this point took refuge in the suggestion of non-luminosity and here analogy was suddenly let fall but even admitting the central orb non-luminous how did he manage to explain its failure to be rendered visible by the incalculable host of glorious suns glaring in all directions about it no doubt what he finally maintained was merely a centre of gravity common to all the revolving orbs but here again analogy must have been let fall our system revolves it is true about a common centre of gravity but it does this in connection with and in consequence of a material sun whose mass more than counterbalances the rest of the system the mathematical circle is a curve composed of an infinity of straight lines but this idea of the circle this idea of it which in regard to all earthly geometry we consider as merely the mathematical in contradistinction from the practical idea is in sober fact the practical conception which alone we have any right to entertain in respect to those titanic circles with which we have to deal at least in fancy when we suppose our system with its fellows revolving about a point in the centre of the galaxy let the most vigorous of human imaginations but attempt to take a single step toward the comprehension of a circuit so unutterable i would scarcely be paradoxical to say that a flash of lightning itself travelling forever upon the circumference of this inconceivable circle would still forever be travelling in a straight line that the path of our sun along such a circumference that the direction of our system in such an orbit would to any human perception deviate in the slightest degree from a straight line even in a million of years is a proposition not to be entertained and yet these ancient astronomers were absolutely cajoled it appears into believing that a decisive curvature had become apparent during the brief period of their astronomical history during the mere point during the utter nothingness of two or three thousand years how incomprehensible that considerations such as this did not at once indicate to them the true state of affairs that of the binary revolution of our sun and alpha Lyrae around a common centre of gravity april seventh continued last night our astronomical amusements had a fine view of the five neptunian asteroids and watched with much interest the putting up of a huge impost on a couple of lintels in the new temple at daphnis in the moon it was amusing to think that creatures so diminutive as the lunarians and bearing so little resemblance to humanity yet evinced a mechanical ingenuity so much superior to our own one finds it difficult too to conceive the vast masses which these people handle so easily to be as light as our own reason tells us they actually are april eighth eureka pundit is in his glory a balloon from canada spoke us today and threw on board several late papers they contain some exceedingly curious information relative to the canadian or rather american antiquities you know i presume that laborers have for some months 
been employed in preparing the ground for a new fountain at Paradise, the Emperor's principal pleasure garden. Paradise, it appears, has been, literally speaking, an island time out of mind. That is to say, its northern boundary was always, as far back as any record extends, a rivulet, or rather a very narrow arm of the sea. This arm was gradually widened until it attained its present breadth, a mile. The whole length of the island is nine miles. The breadth varies materially. The entire area, so Pundit says, was, about 800 years ago, densely packed with houses, some of them 20 stories high, land, for some most unaccountable reason, being considered as especially precious just in this vicinity. The disastrous earthquake, however, of the year 2050, so totally uprooted and overwhelmed the town, for it was almost too large to be called a village, that the most infatigable of our antiquarians have never yet been able to obtain from the site any sufficient data, in the shape of coins, medals, or inscriptions, wherewith to build up even the ghost of a theory concerning the manners, customs, etc., 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 of the aboriginal inhabitants. Nearly all that we have hitherto known of them is that they were a portion of the Knickerbocker tribe of savages infesting the continent at its first discovery by recorder Ricker, a knight of the Golden Fleece. They were by no means uncivilized, however, but cultivated various arts and even sciences after a fashion of their own. It is related of them that they were acute in many respects, but were oddly afflicted with monomania for building what, in the ancient American, was denominated churches, a kind of pagoda instituted for the worship of two idols that went by the names of wealth and fashion. In the end, it is said, the island became nine-tenths of it church. The women, too, it appears, were oddly deformed by a natural perturbance of the region just below the small of the back, although, most unaccountably, this deformity was looked upon altogether in the light of a beauty. One or two pictures of these singular women have, in fact, been miraculously preserved. They look very odd, very like something between a turkey cock and a dromedary. Well, these few details are nearly all that have descended to us respecting the ancient Knickerbockers. It seems, however, that while digging in the center of the emperor's garden, which you know covers the whole island, some of the workmen unearthed a cubicle and evidently chiseled block of granite, weighing several hundred pounds. It was in good preservation, having received, apparently, little injury from the convulsion which entombed it. On one of its surfaces was a marble slab with, only think of it, an inscription, a legible inscription. Pundit is in ecstasies. Upon detaching the slab, a cavity appeared, containing a leaden box filled with various coins, a long scroll of names, several documents which appeared to resemble newspapers, with other matters of intense interest to the antiquarian. There can be no doubt that all these are genuine American relics belonging to the tribe called Knickerbocker. The papers thrown on board our balloon are filled with facsimiles of the coins, MSS, typography, etc., etc. I copy for your amusement the Knickerbocker inscription on the marble slab. This cornerstone of a monument to the memory of George Washington was laid with appropriate ceremonies on the 19th day of October, 1847, the anniversary of the surrender of Lord Cornwallis to General Washington at Yorktown, A.D. 1781, 
under the auspices of the Washington Monument Association of the City of New York. This, as I give it, is a verbatim translation done by Pundit himself, so there can be no mistake about it. From the few words thus preserved, we glean several important items of knowledge, not the least interesting of which is the fact that a thousand years ago actual monuments had fallen into disuse, as was all very proper, the people contenting themselves, as we do now, with a mere indication of the design to erect a monument at some future time, a cornerstone being cautiously laid by itself, solitary and alone. Excuse me for quoting the great American poet Benton. As a guarantee of the magnanimous intention, we ascertain, too, very distinctly, from this admirable inscription, the how as well as the where and the what of the great surrender in question. As to the where, it was Yorktown, wherever that was, and as to the what, it was General Cornwallis, no doubt some wealthy dealer in corn. He was surrendered. The inscription commemorates the surrender of what? Why surrender? No language can be more explicit. Lord Cornwallis was surrendered, for sausage, under the auspices of the Washington Monument Association. No doubt a charitable institution for the depositing of cornerstones. But, heaven bless me, what is the matter? I see. The balloon has collapsed and we shall have a tumble into the sea. I have, therefore, only time enough to add that, from a hasty inspection of the facsimiles of newspapers, etc., etc., I find that the great men in those days among the Americans were one John a Smith and one Zachary a Taylor. Goodbye until I see you again. Whether you ever get this letter or not is point of little importance, as I write altogether for my own amusement. I shall cork the MS up in a bottle, however, and throw it into the sea. Yours everlastingly, Pundita. End of section 11. Recording by Draconis, the real Basement Dwellers podcast. We'll work for money.net. Recording by Chris Cartwright. The Duc de l'Omelette by Edgar Allan Poe And stepped at once into a cooler clime. Cowper Keats fell by a criticism. Who was it died of the Andromache? Ignoble souls. De l'Omelette perished of an autolan. L'histoire en est brève. Assist me, spirit of Apicius. A golden cage bore the little winged wanderer, enamoured, melting, indolent, to the Chaussée d'Antin, from its home in far Peru. From its queenly possessor, La Bellissima, to the Duc de l'Omelette, six peers of the empire conveyed the happy bird. That night, the Duke was to sup alone, in the privacy of his bureau, he reclined languidly on that ottoman for which he sacrificed his loyalty in outbidding his king, the notorious Ottoman of Cadet. He buries his face in the pillow. The clock strikes. Unable to restrain his feelings, his grace swallows an olive. At this moment, the door gently opens to the sound of soft music, and lo! The most delicate of birds is before the most enamoured of men. 
But what inexpressible dismay now overshadows the countenance of the Duke? Horreur! Chien! Baptiste! L'oiseau! Ah, bon Dieu! Cet oiseau modeste que tu as déshabillé de ses plumes, et que tu as servi sans papier! It is superfluous to say more. The Duke expired in a paroxysm of disgust. Ha, ha, ha! said His Grace on the third day after his decease. He, he, he! replied the devil faintly, drawing himself up with an air of hauteur. Why, surely you are not serious, retorted de l'omelette. I have sinned, c'est vrai. But, my good sir, consider. You have no actual intention of putting such, such barbarous threats into execution. Know what? said His Majesty. Come, sir, strip. Strip indeed. Very pretty, I faith. No, sir, I shall not strip. Who are you, pray, that I, Duc de Lomelette, Prince de Foie Gras, just come of age, author of the Mazurkiad, and member of the Academy, should divest myself, at your bidding, of the sweetest pantaloons ever made by Bourdon, the daintiest robe de chambre ever put together by Rambert, to say nothing of the taking my hair out of paper, not to mention the trouble I should have in drawing off my gloves. Who am I? Ah, true. I am Barzibub, Prince of the Fly. I took thee, just now, from a rosewood coffin inlaid with ivory. Thou wast curiously scented, and labelled as per invoice. Belial sent thee, my inspector of cemeteries. The pantaloons, which thou sayest were made by Bourdon, are an excellent pair of linen drawers, and thy robe de chambre is a shroud of no scanty dimensions. Sir, replied the Duke, I am not to be insulted with impunity. Sir, I shall take the earliest opportunity of avenging this insult, so you shall hear from me. In the meantime, au revoir. And the Duke was bowing himself out of the satanic presence when he was interrupted and brought back by a gentleman in waiting. Hereupon, His Grace rubbed his eyes, yawned, shrugged his shoulders, reflected. Having become satisfied of his identity, he took a bird's-eye view of his whereabouts. The apartment was superb. Even de l'omelette pronounced it bien comme il faut. It was not its length, nor its breadth, but its height. Ah, that was appalling! There was no ceiling, certainly none, but a dense whirling mass of fiery-coloured clouds. His Grace's brain reeled as he glanced upward. From above hung a chain of an unknown blood-red metal, its upper end lost, like the city of Boston, parmi les nous. From its nether extremity swung a large cresset. The Duke knew it to be a ruby, but from it there poured a light so intense, so still, so terrible. Persia never worshipped such. Geber never imagined such. Mussulman never dreamed of such when, drugged with opium, he has tottered to a bed of poppies, his back to the flowers, and his face 
to the god Apollo. The duke muttered a slight oath, decidedly approbatory. The corners of the room were rounded into niches. Three of these were filled with statues of gigantic proportions. Their beauty was Grecian, their deformity Egyptian, their tout ensemble French. In the fourth niche, the statue was veiled. It was not colossal, but then there was a taper ankle and a sandaled foot. De Lomelette pressed his hand upon his heart, closed his eyes, raised them, and caught his satanic majesty in a blush. But the paintings, Cupris, Astarte, Astoreth, a thousand and the same, and Raphaela has beheld them. Yes, Raphael has been here, for did he not paint the... and was he not consequently damned? The paintings, the paintings, oh luxury, oh love, who, gazing on those forbidden beauties, shall have eyes for the dainty devices of the golden frames that besprinkled like stars the hyacinth and the porphyry walls? But the Duke's heart is fainting within him. He is not, however, as you suppose, dizzy with magnificence, nor drunk with the ecstatic breath of those innumerable censers. C'est vrai que de toutes ces choses, il la pense beaucoup, mais... The Duc de L'Omelette is terror-stricken. For, through the lurid vista which a single uncurtained window is offering, lo, gleams the most ghastly of all fires. Le pauvre Duc. He could not help imagining that the glorious the voluptuous, the never-dying melodies which pervaded that hall, as they passed filtered and transmuted through the alchemy of the enchanted window panes, were the wailings and the howlings of the hopeless and the damned. And there, too, there, upon the ottoman, who could he be? He, the petit maître, no, the deity, who sat as if carved in marble, et qui sourit with his pale countenance, si amèrement. Mais il faut agir, that is to say, a Frenchman never faints outright. Besides, his grace hated a scene. De l'omelette is himself again. There were some foils upon a table some points also. The Duc s'échappe. He measures two points and, with a grace inimitable, offers His Majesty the choice. Horreur! His Majesty does not fence. Mais il joue. How happy a thought! But His Grace had always had an excellent memory. He had dipped in the Diable of Abbé Gaultier. Therein, it is said, que le diable n'ose pas refuser un jeu de cartes. But the chances, the chances, true, desperate, but scarcely more desperate than the duke. 
Besides, was he not in the secret? Had he not skimmed over Père Lebrun? Was he not a member of the Club Vinteux? Si je perds, said he, je serai deux fois perdu. I shall be doubly damned. Voilà tout. Here his grace shrugged his shoulders. Si je gagne, je reviendrai à mes ortolans. Que les cartes soient préparées. His grace was all care, all attention. His majesty, all confidence. A spectator would have thought of Francis and Charles. His grace thought of his game. His majesty did not think. He shuffled. The duke cut. The cards were dealt. The trump is turned. It is... It is the king. No, it was the queen. His majesty cursed her masculine habiliment. De Lomlet placed his hand upon his heart. They play. The duke counts. The hand is out. His majesty counts heavily, smiles, and is taking wine. The duke slips a card. C'est à vous affaire, said His Majesty, cutting. His Grace bowed, dealt, and arose from the table, en présentant le roi. His Majesty looked chagrined. Had Alexander not been Alexander, he would have been Diogenes. And the Duke assured his antagonist, in taking leave, Que s'il n'eût été de l'omelette, il n'aurait point d'objection d'être le diable. End of section 12。Recording by Elizabeth Zokaitis。The Oblong Box by Edgar Allan Poe。Some years ago, I engaged passage from Charleston, South Carolina, to the city of New York, in the fine packet ship Independence, Captain Hardy. We were to sail on the fifteenth of the month, June, weather permitting, and on the fourteenth, I went on board to arrange some matters in my stateroom. I found that we were to have a great many passengers. Including a more than usual number of ladies, on the list were several of my acquaintances, and among other names, I was rejoiced to see that of Mr. Cornelius Wyatt, a young artist for whom I entertained feelings of warm friendship. He had been with me a fellow student at C University, where we were very much together. He had the ordinary temperament of genius and was a compound of misanthropy, sensibility, and enthusiasm. To these qualities he united the warmest and truest heart which ever beat in a human bosom. I observed that his name was carded upon three staterooms, and upon again referring to the list of passengers, I found that he had engaged passage for himself, wife, and two sisters. His own. The staterooms were sufficiently roomy, and each had two berths, one above the other. 
these berths to be sure were so exceedingly narrow as to be insufficient for more than one person still i could not comprehend why there were three state-rooms for these four persons i was just at that epoch in one of those moody frames of mind which make a man abnormally inquisitive about trifles and i confess with shame that i busied myself in a variety of ill-bred and preposterous conjectures about this matter of the supernumerary state-room it was no business of mine to be sure but with none the less pertinacity did i occupy myself in attempts to resolve the enigma at last i reached a conclusion which wrought in me great wonder why i had not arrived at it before it is a servant of course i said what a fool i am not sooner to have thought of so obvious a solution and then i again repaired to the list but here i saw distinctly that no servant was to come with the party although in fact it had been the original design to bring one for the words and servant had been first written and then overscored oh extra baggage to be sure i now said to myself something he wishes not to be put in the hold something to be kept under his own eye ah i have it a painting or so and this is what he has been bargaining about with nicolino the italian jew this idea satisfied me and i dismissed my curiosity for the nonce wyatt's two sisters i knew very well and most amiable and clever girls they were his wife he had newly married and i had never yet seen her he had often talked about her in my presence however and in his usual style of enthusiasm he described her as of surpassing beauty wit and accomplishment i was therefore quite anxious to make her acquaintance on the day in which i visited the ship the fourteenth wyatt and party were also to visit it so the captain informed me and i waited on board an hour longer than i had designed in hope of being presented to the bride but then an apology came mrs w was a little indisposed and would decline coming on board until to-morrow at the hour of sailing the morrow having arrived i was going from my hotel to the wharf when captain hardy met me and said that owing to circumstances a stupid but convenient phrase he rather thought the independence would not sail for a day or two and that when all was ready he would send up and let me know this i thought strange for there is a stiff southerly breeze but as the circumstances were not forthcoming although i pumped for them with much perseverance i had nothing to do but to return home and digest my impatience at leisure i did not receive the expected message from the captain for nearly a week it came at length however and i immediately went on board the ship was crowded with passengers and everything was in the bustle attendant upon making sail wyatt's party arrived in about ten minutes after myself there were the two sisters the bride and the artist the latter in one of his customary fits of moody misanthropy i was too well used to these however to pay them any special attention he did not even introduce me to his wife 
this courtesy devolving perforce upon his sister Marian, a very sweet and intelligent girl, who, in a few hurried words, made us acquainted. Mrs. Wyatt had been closely veiled, and when she raised her veil in acknowledging my bow, I confess that I was very profoundly astonished. I should have been much more so, however, had not long experience advised me not to trust, with too implicit a reliance, the enthusiastic descriptions of my friend, the artist, when indulging in comments upon the loveliness of woman. When beauty was the theme, I well knew with what facility he soared into the regions of the purely ideal. The truth is, I could not help regarding Mrs. Wyatt as a decidedly plain-looking woman. If not positively ugly, she was not, I think, very far from it. She was dressed, however, in exquisite taste, and then I had no doubt that she had captivated my friend's heart by the more enduring graces of the intellect and soul. She said very few words, and passed at once into her stateroom with Mr. W., my old inquisitiveness now returned. There was no servant. That was a settled point. I looked, therefore, for the extra baggage. After some delay a cart arrived at the wharf, with an oblong pine box, which was everything that seemed to be expected. Immediately upon its arrival we made sail, and in a short time were safely over the bar and standing out to sea. The box in question was, as I say, oblong. It was about six feet in length by two and a half in breadth. I observed it attentively and liked to be precise. Now this shape was peculiar, and no sooner had I seen it than I took credit to myself for the accuracy of my guessing. I had reached the conclusion, it will be remembered, that the extra baggage of my friend, the artist, would prove to be pictures, or at least a picture, for I knew he had been for several weeks in conference with Nicolino. And now here was a box, which, from its shape, could possibly contain nothing in the world but a copy of Leonardo's Last Supper, and a copy of this very Last Supper done by Rubini the Younger at Florence, I had known, for some time, to be in the possession of Nicolino. This point, therefore, I considered as sufficiently settled. I chuckled excessively when I thought of my acumen. It was the first time I had ever known Wyatt to keep from me any of his artistical secrets, but here he evidently intended to steal a march upon me, and smuggle a fine picture to New York under my very nose, expecting me to know nothing of the matter. I resolved to quiz him well, now and hereafter. One thing, however, annoyed me not a little. The box did not go into the extra stateroom. It was deposited in Wyatt's own, and there, too, it remained, occupying very nearly the whole of the floor, no doubt to the exceeding discomfort of the artist and his wife. This the more especially as the tar or paint with which it was lettered in sprawling capitals emitted a strong, disagreeable, and, to my fancy, a peculiarly disgusting odor. On the lid were painted the words, Mrs. Adelaide Curtis, Albany, New York, Charge of Cornelius Wyatt, Esquire, this side up, to be handled with care. 
Now, I was aware that Mrs. Adelaide Curtis, of Albany, was the artist's wife's mother, but then I looked upon the whole address as a mystification, intended especially for myself. I made up my mind, of course, that the box and contents would never get farther north than the studio of my misanthropic friend in Chambers Street, New York. For the first three or four days we had fine weather, although the wind was dead ahead. Having chopped round to the northward, immediately upon our losing sight of the coast, the passengers were, consequently, in high spirits and disposed to be social. I must accept, however, Wyatt and his sisters, who behaved stiffly, and, I could not help thinking, uncourteously to the rest of the party. Wyatt's conduct I did not so much regard. He was gloomy, even beyond his usual habit. In fact, he was morose. But in him I was prepared for eccentricity. For the sisters, however, I could make no excuse. They secluded themselves in their staterooms during the greater part of the passage, and absolutely refused, although I repeatedly urged them, to hold communication with any person on board. Mrs. Wyatt herself was far more agreeable. That is to say, she was chatty, and to be chatty is no slight recommendation at sea. She became excessively intimate with most of the ladies, and, to my profound astonishment, evinced no equivocal disposition to coquette with the men. She amused us all very much. I say amused, and scarcely know how to explain myself. The truth is, I soon found that Mrs. W. was far oftener laughed at than with. The gentlemen said little about her, but the ladies, in a little while, pronounced her a good-hearted thing, rather indifferent-looking, totally uneducated, and decidedly vulgar. The great wonder was how Wyatt had been entrapped into such a match. Wealth was the general solution. But this I knew to be no solution at all, for Wyatt had told me that she neither brought him a dollar nor had any expectations from any source whatever. He had married, he said, for love, and for love only, and his bride was far more than worthy of his love. When I thought of these expressions, on the part of my friend, I confess that I felt indescribably puzzled. Could it be possible that he was taking leave of his senses? What else could I think? He, so refined, so intellectual, so fastidious, with so exquisite a perception of the faulty, and so keen an appreciation of the beautiful. To be sure, the lady seemed especially fond of him, particularly so in his absence, when she made herself ridiculous by frequent quotations of what had been said by her beloved husband, Mr. Wyatt. The word husband seemed forever, to use one of her own delicate expressions, forever on the tip of her tongue. In the meantime, it was observed by all on board that he avoided her in the most pointed manner, and, for the most part, shut himself up alone in his stateroom, where, in fact, he might have been said to live altogether, leaving his wife at full liberty to amuse herself as she thought best, in the public society of the main cabin. My conclusion, from what I saw and heard, was that 
that the artist by some unaccountable freak of fate or perhaps in some fit of enthusiastic and fanciful passion had been induced to unite himself with a person altogether beneath him and that the natural result entire and speedy disgust had ensued i pitied him from the bottom of my heart but could not for that reason quite forgive his incommunicativeness in the matter of the last supper for this i resolved to have my revenge one day he came upon deck and taking his arm as had been my wont i sauntered with him backward and forward his gloom however which i considered quite natural under the circumstances seemed entirely unabated he said little and that moodily and with evident effort i ventured a jest or two and he made a sickening attempt at a smile poor fellow as i thought of his wife i wondered that he could have heart to put on even the semblance of mirth i determined to commence a series of covert insinuations or innuendos about the oblong box just to let him perceive gradually that i was not altogether the butt or victim of his little bit of pleasant mystification my first observation was by way of opening a masked battery i said something about the peculiar shape of that box and as i spoke the words i smiled knowingly winked and touched him gently with my forefinger in the ribs the manner in which wyatt received this harmless pleasantry convinced me at once that he was mad at first he stared at me as if he found it impossible to comprehend the witticism of my remark but as its point seemed slowly to make its way into his brain his eyes in the same proportion seemed protruding from their sockets then he grew very red then hideously pale then as if highly amused with what i had insinuated he began a loud and boisterous laugh which to my astonishment he kept up with gradually increasing vigor for ten minutes or more in conclusion he fell flat and heavily upon the deck when i ran to uplift him to all appearance he was dead i called assistance and with much difficulty we brought him to himself upon reviving he spoke incoherently for some time at length we bled him and put him to bed the next morning he was quite recovered so far as regarded his mere bodily health of his mind i say nothing of course i avoided him during the rest of the passage by advice of the captain who seemed to coincide with me altogether in my views of his insanity but cautioned me to say nothing on this head to any person on board several circumstances occurred immediately after this fit of wyatt which contributed to heighten the curiosity with which i was already possessed among other things this i had been nervous drank too much strong green tea and slept ill at night in fact for two nights i could not be properly said to sleep at all now my stateroom opened into the main cabin or dining-room as did those of all the single men on board wyatt's three rooms were in the after-cabin which was separated from the main one by a slight sliding door 
never locked even at night. As we were almost constantly on a wind, and the breeze was not a little stiff, the ship heeled to leeward very considerably, and whenever her starboard side was to leeward, the sliding door between the cabins slid open, and so remained, nobody taking the trouble to get up and shut it. But my berth was in such a position that when my own stateroom door was open, as well as the sliding door in question, and my own door was always open on account of the heat, I could see into the after-cabin quite distinctly, and just at that portion of it, too, where were situated the staterooms of Mr. Wyatt. Well, during two nights, not consecutive. While I lay awake, I clearly saw Mrs. W., about eleven o'clock upon each night, steal cautiously from the stateroom of Mr. W., and enter the extra room, where she remained until daybreak, when she was called by her husband and went back. That they were virtually separated was clear. They had separate apartments, no doubt in contemplation of a more permanent divorce, and here, after all, I thought was the mystery of the extra stateroom. There was another circumstance, too, which interested me much. During the two wakeful nights in question, and immediately after the disappearance of Mrs. Wyatt into the extra stateroom, I was attracted by certain singular, cautious, subdued noises in that of her husband. After listening to them for some time, with thoughtful attention, I at length succeeded perfectly in translating their import. They were sounds occasioned by the artist in prying open the oblong box by means of a chisel and mallet, the latter being apparently muffled or deadened by some soft woolen or cotton substance in which its head was enveloped. In this manner I fancied I could distinguish the precise moment when he fairly disengaged the lid, also that I could determine when he removed it altogether and when he deposited it upon the lower berth in his room. This latter point I knew, for example, by certain slight taps which the lid made in striking against the wooden edges of the berth, as he endeavoured to lay it down very gently, there being no room for it on the floor. After this there was a dead stillness, and I heard nothing more, upon either occasion, until nearly daybreak, unless— Perhaps I may mention a low sobbing or murmuring sound, so very much suppressed as to be nearly inaudible, if, indeed, the whole of this latter noise were not rather produced by my own imagination. I say it seemed to resemble sobbing or sighing, but, of course, it could not have been either. I rather think it was a ringing in my own ears— Mr. Wyatt, no doubt, according to custom, was merely giving the rein to one of his hobbies, indulging in one of his fits of artistic enthusiasm. He had opened his oblong box in order to feast his eyes on the pictorial treasure within. There was nothing in this, however, to make him sob. I repeat, therefore, that it must have been simply a freak of my own fancy— distempered by good Captain Hardy's green tea. Just before dawn, on each of the two nights of which I speak, 
I distinctly heard Mr. Wyatt replace the lid upon the oblong box, and force the nails into their old places by means of the muffled mallet. Having done this, he issued from his stateroom, fully dressed, and proceeded to call Mrs. W. from hers. We had been at sea seven days, and were now off Cape Hatteras, when there came a tremendously heavy blow from the southwest. We were, in a measure, prepared for it, however, as the weather had been holding out threats for some time. Everything was made snug, alow and aloft, and as the wind steadily freshened, we lay to, at length, under spanker and foretopsail, both double-reefed. In this trim we rode safely enough for forty-eight hours, the ship proving herself an excellent sea-boat in many respects, and shipping no water of any consequence. At the end of this period, however, the gale had freshened into a hurricane, and hour after sail split into ribbons, bringing us so much in the trough of the water that we shipped several prodigious seas, one immediately after the other. By this accident we lost three men overboard with the caboose, and nearly the whole of the larboard bulwarks. Scarcely had we recovered our senses, before the foretopsail went into shreds, when we got up a storm-stay-sail, and with this did pretty well for some hours, the ship heading the sea much more steadily than before. The gale still held on, however, and we saw no signs of its abating. The rigging was found to be ill-fitted, and greatly strained, and on the third day of the blow, about five in the afternoon, our mizzenmast, in a heavy lurch to windward, went by the board. For an hour or more we tried in vain to get rid of it, on account of the prodigious rolling of the ship, and, before we had succeeded, the carpenter came aft and announced four feet of water in the hold. To add to our dilemma, we found the pumps choked and nearly useless. All was now confusion and despair, but an effort was made to lighten the ship by throwing overboard as much of her cargo as could be reached, and by cutting away the two masts that remained. This we at last accomplished, but we were still unable to do anything at the pumps, and, in the meantime, the leak gained on us very fast. At sundown, the gale had sensibly diminished in violence, and as the sea went down with it, we still entertained faint hopes of saving ourselves in the boats. At eight p.m., the clouds broke away to windward, and we had the advantage of a full moon, a piece of good fortune, which served wonderfully to cheer our drooping spirits. After incredible labor, we succeeded, at length, in getting the long-boat over the side without material accident, and into this we crowded the whole of the crew and most of the passengers. This party made off immediately, and, after undergoing much suffering, finally arrived, in safety, at Ocracoke Inlet, on the third day after the wreck. Fourteen passengers, with the captain, remained on board, resolving to trust their fortunes to the jolly boat at the stern. We lowered it without difficulty, although it was only by a miracle that we prevented it from swamping as it touched the water. It contained, when afloat, the captain and his wife, 
Mr. Wyatt and party, a Mexican officer, wife, four children, and myself, with a Negro valet. We had no room, of course, for anything except a few positively necessary instruments, some provisions, and the clothes upon our backs. No one had thought of even attempting to save anything more. What must have been the astonishment of all, then, when having proceeded a few fathoms from the ship, Mr. Wyatt stood up in the stern sheets, and coolly demanded of Captain Hardy that the boat should be put back for the purpose of taking in his oblong box. "'Sit down, Mr. Wyatt,' replied the captain, somewhat sternly. "'You will capsize us if you do not sit quite still. Our gunwale is almost in the water now.' "'The box!' vociferated Mr. Wyatt, still standing. "'The box, I say! Captain Hardy, you cannot, you will not refuse me. Its weight will be but a trifle. It is nothing, mere nothing. By the mother who bore you, for the love of heaven, by your hope of salvation, I implore you to put back for the box.' The captain, for a moment, seemed touched by the earnest appeal of the artist but he regained his stern composure and merely said, "'Mr. Wyatt, you are mad. I cannot listen to you. Sit down, I say, or you will swamp the boat. Stay. Hold him. Seize him. He is about to spring overboard. There. I knew it. He is over.' And so the captain said this, Mr. Wyatt, in fact, sprang from the boat, and, as we were yet in the lee of the wreck, succeeded by almost superhuman exertion in getting hold of a rope which hung from the forechains. In another moment he was on board and rushing frantically down into the cabin. In the meantime we had been swept astern of the ship, and being quite out of her lee were at the mercy of the tremendous sea which was still running. We made a determined effort to put back, but our little boat was like a feather in the breach of the tempest. We saw at a glance that the doom of the unfortunate artist was sealed. As our distance from the wreck rapidly increased, the madman, for as such only could we regard him, was seen to emerge from the companionway, up which, by dint of strength that appeared gigantic, he dragged, bodily, the oblong box, while we gazed in the extremity of astonishment, he passed rapidly several turns of a three-inch rope, first around the box and then around his body. In another instant both body and box were in the sea, disappearing suddenly, at once and forever. We lingered a while sadly upon our oars, with our eyes riveted upon the spot. At length we pulled away, the silence remained unbroken for an hour. Finally, I hazarded a remark. Did you observe, Captain, how suddenly they sank? Was not that an exceedingly singular thing? I confess that I entertained some feeble hope of his final deliverance when I saw him lash himself to the box and commit himself to the sea. They sank as a matter of course, replied the Captain and that like a shot. They will soon rise again, however, but not until the salt melts. "'The salt!' I ejaculated. "'Hush!' said the captain, pointing to the wife and sisters of the deceased. 
we must talk of these things at some more appropriate time. We suffered much, and made a narrow escape, but fortune befriended us, as well as our mates in the longboat. We landed, in fine, more dead than alive, after four days of intense distress, upon the beach opposite Roanoke Island. We remained here a week, were not ill-treated by the wreckers, and at length obtained a passage to New York. About a month after the loss of the independence, I happened to meet Captain Hardy in Broadway. Our conversation turned, naturally, upon the disaster, and especially upon the sad fate of poor Wyatt. I thus learned the following particulars. The artist had engaged passage for himself, wife, two sisters, and a servant. His wife was, indeed, as she had been represented, a most lovely and most accomplished woman. On the morning of the 14th of June, the day in which I first visited the ship, the lady suddenly sickened and died. The young husband was frantic with grief, but circumstances imperatively forbade the deferring his voyage to New York. It was necessary to take to her mother the corpse of his adored wife, and, on the other hand, the universal prejudice which would prevent his doing so openly was well known. Nine-tenths of the passengers would have abandoned the ship rather than take passage with a dead body. In this dilemma, Captain Hardy arranged that the corpse, being first partially embalmed and packed with a large quantity of salt, in a box of suitable dimensions, should be conveyed on board as merchandise. Nothing was to be said of the lady's decease, and, as it was well understood that Mr. Wyatt had engaged passage for his wife, it became necessary that some person should personate her during the voyage. This the deceased lady's maid was easily prevailed on to do. The extra stateroom, originally engaged for this girl during her mistress's life, was now merely retained. In this stateroom the pseudo-wife slept, of course, every night. In the daytime she performed, to the best of her ability, the part of her mistress, whose person, it had been carefully ascertained, was unknown to any of the passengers on board. My own mistake arose, naturally enough, through too careless, too inquisitive, and too impulsive a temperament. But of late— it is a rare thing that I sleep soundly at night. There is a countenance which haunts me, turn as I will. There is an hysterical laugh which will forever ring within my ears. End of section 13